This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we will see how Paul's methodology changes and then draw some conclusions about what we see happening in his ministry. Yeah, so here's what I want to do with our episode today. Brent, we're going to spend some time in the text. We're just going to bounce around for like four chapters of Acts. I'm just going to like bounce. Boom, 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 boom. Like reading some verses, making some observations. Then I kind of want to add some commentary to that, to what I see it's really not what I see. It's what I learned under my teacher, Ray, at our time in Turkey. Um, so I kind of want to talk about that and uh, and just close with some thoughts there. So we're going to spend a bunch of time in the text kind of right up front. We're going to read some. I'm going to talk about what I see, read some, talk about what I see. We'll just add some commentary as we, as we jump through here. So what's our first uh, passage here, Brent? Starting in Acts 16. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. Ooh, let me just interrupt you. If you want one of my favorite, you know, I've, I, I've mentioned this before, and these are, I would not call them crowd pleasers, Brent, but crowd irritators. There are a few, there are a handful of special lessons that I reserve solely for those people that come and join me in uh, Israel, and in this case, Turkey. So if you want to hear one of my favorite lessons... That we drive four hours out of the way for. Remember this lesson, Brent? Yeah. It's a good one? Yep. If you want to come hear this lesson, you're going to have to come join me in Turkey in 2022. Put it on your calendars in May of 2022. Come listen to this lesson. I just love to throw those little things out there and just irritate all our listeners. Won't be doing it on the podcast. I always have a few tricks up my sleeve <laughs> for those and trip participants. Yeah, it's, uh, it is a drive and... And yeah, it's an interesting sight, but boy, it's good. It's good. Timothy. All right, keep going. Verse two. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Okay, so time out. Right there. Why is Paul circumcising Timothy? Let's get that on the table. Because we just got done. Paul's the guy arguing that people don't have to be circumcised. So why in the world is he circumcising Timothy? And I've heard a ton of people say, well, he was circumcising Timothy so that the Jews wouldn't be like distracted or he wouldn't be a distraction wherever he went. It's the exact opposite. Timothy's mother is a Jew. And his father is a Greek. The reason he's not circumcised is because Judaism will not let him be circumcised. He's what's called a literal mumser. We talked about mumser with which gospel, Brent? Session three. Matthew. Matthew. And we used it in a poetic sense. A mumser kind of as outsider. But Timothy is a literal legal mumser or a mamser in a lot of translations. He is an illegitimate child born to a Greek father. He is not allowed to be circumcised. So here's Paul doing the exact opposite. Why? Because that's the message of the gospel. Guys, I cannot say this loud enough. I'm going to start to get irritated. The message of the gospel is whoever is being pushed out is welcome in. That is the message. So when the Gentiles are being pushed out because they're not circumcised, what does Paul argue, Brent? You don't have to be. You don't have to be. When the when a Jew is being pushed out and not allowed to be circumcised, what does Paul do? Circumcise. Absolutely. The gospel says there are no outcasts. And so whatever it is that's forcing you to be out, the gospel reverses it and says you're in. 
This is the scandal scandal of the Gospel of Matthew. It's the scandal of the Gospel of Paul. It is the scandal of your New Testament. But now I'm getting worked up, so Brett, you need to keep reading. <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> Marty's slapping his fist in his hand. <laughs> oh, man. People telling me, oh, he didn't want him to be a distraction to the Jews. Are you kidding me? Everywhere he went, he was a purposeful distraction to the Jews. Purposely <laughs> thrown it in his face. Mic drop moment for Paul. Man. Okay. Uh, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Fry- Phrygia. Phrygia. And Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter... Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Messiah and went down to Troas. Tro, Tros. Troas. Man, these names. Uh, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. All right. And then they end up going to Philippi, and we're just not going to read every verse here, so we're picking and I'm picking and choosing some verses on purpose here. So they go to Philippi, have a experience there with Lydia, who is a woman from Tira Tira. That'll show up in the book of Revelation, a seller of purple cloth. Um, and then what's our next passage? Where are we going, Brent? Uh, jump down to verse 16. Okay. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. Pretty weird demonic interaction right there. A demon running behind you telling the truth. (laughs) Uh, She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Okay, now you're going to feel this theme throughout this whole section. Paul shows up in an area. He preaches the gospel. The gospel changes things. It shakes up the culture. And the culture responds with lobbying all these accusations. But you'll notice Paul reminds me of Isaac in, in session one who doesn't respond with fire with fire. He doesn't respond with fighting back. He doesn't defend. He just he just sits there and they lob the accusations and he doesn't try to dismantle their worldview. But it, one of the things I love about this passage is this woman followed them for days. He kept, She kept this up for many days, it says in verse 18. Finally, Paul became so, what, Brent? Annoyed. Annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit. Now, here, here's a point that I love to just make here. Like, we as Christians feel like it's our job to run through the world fixing everybody. Like, healing everybody's diseases, making everybody repent of their sin, casting out everybody's demons, Listen, this happened for days, and Paul didn't do anything until he was so overwhelmingly annoyed that he finally turned around and he... Apparently, Paul doesn't cast out every demon he meets, which I know is going to kind of throw us for a loop, but it's right there in front of us. This happened for days, and he was like, it's not why I'm here. It's not why I'm here. It's not why I'm here. It's all right. I've had enough. And then he turns around. But this idea that every time we we are confronted, every time we're confronted with somebody's sin, every time we're confronted with somebody's demonic, whatever, every time we're confronted, we've got to fix it. 
Like Jesus has sent here to fix it. Apparently it's just not true. And sometimes there's a whole lot of discernment that we have to use about when we're supposed to engage a situation and when we're not, when the demon's supposed to be cast out and when the timing's just not right. Apparently there's a time to cast out demons and apparently there's a time to not cast out demons. I don't understand how that works, but I just love to make that observation here because if that's like, if that's like job number one in Paul's mission, he should have done it days ago, but it takes days before he's finally like, oh, for the love of everything holy and sacred. And the other weird thing is perhaps shouting the truth is not always helpful. Preach it, Brent Billings. <laughs> Preach it. Or just move on to the next passage, whatever you'd like to do. Yeah, Acts 17 it is. <laughs> when Paul and his companions had passed through Am- Amphipolis. I love that you're reading all this stuff. Good work. Oh, Apol- Apollonia? Yeah, sure. Jeepers. Yep. Uh, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. How many weeks was he there, Brent? Three, well, three Sabbath days. Three Sabbath days. So he's over at least three weeks as far as liturgical time periods. He's there for, and he's talking about Jesus and the Messiah and the resurrection. And, and apparently they're, they're what? Apparently, how did they respond? Um, well, I mean, he came back for week two and then week three. So it seems like they're receptive. Yeah. They were inviting him back to keep coming back and keep teaching. Go ahead and keep reading. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He said, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Okay. So read that again. Some of the Jews Uh were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Oh, so, so some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Okay. Go ahead. As did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Okay, so so did the Theosabes. Of course. Okay, interesting. But other Jews were jealous. Oh, so all the Jews were jealous? Other Jews. Oh, just other Jews. Some. Because because some Jews were persuaded. So it seems. So it seems. <laughs> so it says. So it says. But other Jews, thank you for saying it that way. So, so it does say right here in our Bible that... That other Jews were jealous, but some Jews believed. So this whole idea that the Jews rejected this all throughout the book of Acts, it's nonsense. It's absolutely nonsense. But go ahead and, go ahead and finish up. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Doesn't sound like very good Jews to me. <laughs> they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. And of, of course, Jason. Like, yeah. Jason's always housing yeah. Paul and Silas. Yeah, of course, Jason. Every time. It's always Jason. All right, so they're in Thessalonica. They're in Berea. I think we got some, we got some in Berea. What's our next passage? Where are we going? Verse next. Uh, yeah, uh, jumping down to verse 10. Okay. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. We always go where first? To the synagogue. Okay, excellent. First order of business. Now, the Berean Jews were of the more... The Berean what? The Berean Jews. Okay, the Berean Jews. So we're talking about a very Jewish... We're still talking about a very Jewish story. Like it's been a very Jewish story this whole time. We were having a very Jewish story. Gentiles are in it, but this is a very Jewish story. Am I right, Brent? Yeah. He's going to a... A synagogue. And we're talking about the Berean... Jews. Okay, interesting. Go ahead. <laughs> now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Oh, I hope so. Stirring up rabble-rousers from the marketplace. For they received the message with great eagerness. And what? Ex- and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Wow. Okay. As a result, many of them believed. Who believed? The Jews. Which ones? The Berean Jews. Okay. As did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Notice that it goes out of its way to say the Jews believed, and by the way, some Gentiles too. But it's the Jews that are the point of the passage. Go ahead. And always the women are prominent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
There's some background. Come to Turkey if you want to hear more about that, but not today in the podcast. Go ahead. <laughs> it is it is pretty interesting. It's like and 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 many men, but the the prominent, prominent Greek women. women. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So so all the Jews in Berea didn't like Paul. Uh, well, no, I think the. I think the Berean Jews were all on board, it seems like. Okay, but then there were some Jews, apparently. All the Jews from Thessalonica? Well, let's see. No, no, no. When, yeah, the Jews in Thessalonica, I mean, assuming it's the same Jews who were stirring up trouble yeah, in Thessalonica, exactly. so it would be right. just some of them. So it's not everybody. Okay, I'm just checking to make sure we're following along. All right. Uh, let's see. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. All right. So Paul ends up in Athens. He ends up... Do you have anything else in chapter 17 before I move on? Yeah, down in 24. Down in 24. Okay. So Paul ends up in Athens. Uh, He ends up... um, uh, going and talking to the philosophers, he's he's actually in um, he's actually on Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill, which is outside of the Bible. We know as a very famous place where like the famous Stoics, the famous philosophers, like the top leading thinkers of Greek worldview, gather to think and talk. Like he's in the middle of it. Like he's not in some side room somewhere. He's not on stage C. Like he's on the main stage right now. And what I love about this is how he goes about talking to this group of people. He doesn't run in there and confront their faulty worldview. He doesn't lay out a whole bunch of apologetics. He, what does he do? Go ahead. Lay it on me. Is this Paul talking? Yeah, I, actually, I don't think I give you enough. I'll start. People of Athens. I see that in every way you are very religious. Boy, that's a different starting point than, did you know you were a sinner? <laughs> like what man i am so i'm so jacked up today i probably need to talk less and you probably need to read more but gosh dang it paul shows up to the greeks the makers and bringers of hellenism he has every right to call them out his first line is i see that you love religion not let me talk to you about your depravity golly man sakes alive for as i walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship I even found an altar with this inscription. He doesn't even badmouth their idol, their idols. He says, I walked around and looked at your idols. I noticed one idol that said, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And that's what I'm going to proclaim to you today. He meets them on their terms. He speaks very positively. Go and pick up where I left off, Brent. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Okay, he just quoted their own poets. Uh, I keep getting an email recently. I don't know why it's kind of come in a spurt all of a sudden. I've gotten the email about three or four times recently. People that are back in session one, and they're asking me, like, you keep talking about Rabbi Foreman, but Rabbi Foreman's not a believer. So if he's not a Messianic believer in Jesus, how can we listen to his stuff? Because it can't be true. Which I don't even know where that idea comes from. But truth is everywhere. And wherever you find truth, whose truth is it, Brent? God. It's God's truth. 
And you'll find truth in all kinds of places. And people that are absolute fools can even utter truth at times. And then there are all kinds of people that aren't fools, that actually utter all kinds of truth. And it doesn't mean that they speak for God, or they're the model of righteousness, or they're doing Christianity correctly. It means that there's truth there. And when I find truth, I can use truth. Now, we're even not talking about that, because Rabbi Foreman's an Orthodox Jew, a follower of the God of Israel, as in the God of the Bible, an expert in the very Bible that we completely misrepresent and tear apart. And just because you're a Christian, and just because you claim to follow Jesus, and just because you claim to have the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean that everything that comes out of your mouth, I can now take as true. I've heard quite a bit of garbage out of Christian people and teachers and churches. So truth doesn't come because I've got the label correct, because I'm wearing the right t-shirt, or because I've got the right hat on. Like, that's not what makes truth, truth. Truth is it just is wherever we find it. He finds truth in an, in Hellenistic poetry. He finds truth on HBO, so to speak. He finds truth in their whatever whatever our parallels would be. The Netflix of our day, the New York Times, the Fox News for those of us that are going to wrestle with that. The whatever he finds truth wherever he can find it, and he says, "Look, it's God." Uh, we get to do the same thing. There is nothing we should ever study, consume, look at that we don't think critically about. But I love that part of Paul. And I feel like this this passage is quoted all the time by believers. For in him we live and move and have our being. Down in the footnotes, it says that's from the Cretan philosopher Epimenides. Absolutely. Uh, Paul, does listen. anyone realize that? Like, yeah, I wonder. No, I, lo- <laughs> no, I love that. Because... And then we are his offspring, the yes. Cilician Stoic philosopher Eridus. Yeah. It, it, Paul's using, Paul. Paul's not just going in there with his apologetics up his sleeve. Paul is going in there knowing, knowing about their culture, having done his homework, knowing how to speak to them, knowing how to speak their language, knowing how to meet them on their terms. Paul's brilliant here. He's absolutely brilliant. And he's going to find truth in their world wherever he can find it so that he can call out God, not in his world, but in their world. He even uses their idolatry to do it. Like he, he's wandering around. He sees a, an, an idol to an unknown God and he goes, boom, just found my gateway into this conversation. I'll tell you who that unknown God is. Let me tell you who that God is. Now, any one of us just be sitting there going, that's not who that idol is. But Paul's like, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use the truth that I can find here to tell them the gospel. Ah, So good. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He was given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, Areopagus. Areopagus also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So he was apparently even uh, uh, able to convince some of the Greek philosophers, this crazy Jew trained under Gamaliel in Hellenistic training and education came in handy. There it did. All right. Where are we going next, Brent? Uh, Acts 18 now. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. 
Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Okay, so Paul said, so Paul goes week after week. So he must have been there for a while before he eventually irritates them so much that they become abusive in whatever way and force him out. Okay, keep going. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Ooh, a Theosebes. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. I wish I knew what that paragraph was all about. So he goes to the house of a God-fearer, and the synagogue leader believes. <laughs> oh, man, that that's pretty good. Little. Okay, go ahead and keep on. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So Paul stayed in Corinth for how long, Brent? year and a half. He has not stayed anywhere that long yet. That's a new thing for him. He stayed there for a long time. And he's working for a while. Absolutely. He's teaching uh, on the Sabbath, but he's working in the meantime. Yeah, Until um, Timothy and Silas show up, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, Do you have anything more in that passage? Yeah. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak... Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Let them do their thing. Now you don't have anything else in the rest of the chapter, right? Uh, Nope. Okay, now it's going to be important. We're even going to skip 19. Yeah, so the rest of 18 is going to be important. Paul's going to stay in Corinth for some time. He's going to work with Priscilla and Aquila. He's going to meet a Jew named Apollos. Now, Apollos is going to apparently know all about John the Baptist, but not about this Jesus and the Holy Spirit thing. And this passage is important for me because I used to really make a big deal about the baptism of Christians being like the baptism of the Essenes. And it's important here to recognize that the Essene baptism that John was doing is not, according to Paul, not what Apollos needs to know about. And this is a big deal for him. So let's see here. Let's see if I can find the passage here. So verse 24, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man and, and a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He has been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. So he knows about Jesus, apparently, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by the grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. That's important for me because it does point out that there's something about this Christian baptism that is different and something connected to the Holy Spirit that is other than other than just the Essene baptism. So that's, I'm not going to get into that. I get a lot of emails about baptism. Uh, I try to avoid a lot of that because depending on what traditions people are coming from, we all have a lot of reasons for the things we believe about baptism. 
I think most of all of our opinions about baptism are not historical, but that doesn't necessarily make them wrong. But there is something here that that does show us that Christian baptism is rooted in something unique, something Holy Spirit, something New Testament, something different. And so baptism is important here. Um, just like to point that out kind of in passing. Now we're going to skip Acts 19, but it's super important. It's their time in, in Ephesus. But if you want to read about it, where are they going to have to come? If you want to learn about it, where you got to come, Brent? To Turkey. Got to come to Turkey because we're going to go to Ephesus. We're going to stand in this theater, in the theater that we read about here. Like you've been there. Yeah. You took pictures. It's awesome. You should even throw a picture in the show notes. Oh, okay, fine. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Because cause that's pretty great. That's pretty great. We're like, we'll stand like literally in the theater that Paul was in. This is pretty crazy. Okay. What's our next passage, Brent? Uh, let's see. Acts 20, starting in verse 13. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as he embraced them and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. All right, so I want to close with some notes that I have about this whole section of Acts. And one of the questions that drives us notes is I want to ask the title of our episode today, Methetes or Talmudim? 
What I'm fascinated by is what Paul is doing, because Paul's ministry changes over his different journeys. It changes over the years. His methods change, and they seem to change on a growing curve, like he's on a, a a consistent trajectory, and I want to notice that. And so one of the words that's problematic in our New Testament Greek, in our Greek New Testaments, is the word methetes. Methetes is a Greek word for what, Brent? Disciple. Disciple. Now, the problem with methetes is it's a very general word used for everything from student to disciple. Now, we talked in session three about Talmud and, and the commitment of a Talmud. And the Talmud was more than just a student. What was a Talmud, Brent? Uh, you're going to follow your rabbi and become exactly like them in every way. All day, every day, every day of the year, for as long as that rabbi has you in their service, usually two, three, four, five years, your whole life has been consumed with following them. That was the commitment of a Talmud. Now, in the Hebrew, we had words that distinguished those two things. If I understand it correctly, there was a word that was available to the Hebrew authors that they could have used if they ever wanted to. Hebrew authors would have used words like lemud for student. Lemud is student. Talmud is disciple. And a disciple is so much more than a student. A student in the sense that we think of student, like go to class, sit underneath a teacher, learn a lot of things, but not a come follow me, imitate my every move kind of disciple. So Lemud, student, Talmud, disciple. In Greek, you just have one word for both, methetes. And Acts and Luke uses that word in both instances. He uses, there are the disciples, just the people that just sit under the apostles, the disciples of that area, the students of that area, the methetes of that area. But then there are also methetes, which is a come follow me type relationship. It's a Timothy. Timothy was not just a methetes. Timothy was a methetes. Like he followed Paul. He left Lystra. He went with Paul everywhere. Uh, Aquila, Priscilla would be Talmudim. So what I want to look at is I want to look at Paul through the lens of, is is Paul working with Methetes? Is he working with Limudim or is he working with Talmudim? And what is Paul's relationship with that? So that's the conversation I want to close with here. So the rest of the book of Acts uh, is going, uh, including the stuff we looked at today and the rest of the book of Acts Um, will be the record of how the early church continues to spread this gospel of grace and inclusion through the world of the Gentiles. This doesn't make the story any less Jewish, mind you. It will will take another 80 years or so before we see a Gentile-dominated church, and what a mess that will be. Stay tuned for session five. Yes, the part of our Bible that we have come to know as the New Testament is the collection of correspondence between the apostles and the communities scattered throughout Asia and Asia Minor that are trying to bring this good news into every corner of the empire and the struggles they have in the process of spreading that gospel. But there are a couple more observations I want to make here before we close up the book of Acts. Both of them are about Paul. We'll need to wrap up that discussion we had earlier about, remember we left the discussion heading, uh, we kind of left a discussion hanging, Brent. A discussion about was it a was it uh, was Paul's experience a conversion? Was it a repentance, or is it something else? So don't forget about that. We have to we have to tie that up next episode. But it's also interesting to note how Paul changes throughout his ministry. We mentioned earlier that his first convert seems to do more for Paul's intentions than simply give him an idea for a name change. Paul seems to be bent on the idea of getting to the top of Rome, speaking to Caesar himself, 
We also mentioned that God continues to step in the way. We read a couple of those passages today. He wanted to go here, but the spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them. They wanted to go here, but they were prevented. He wanted to go here, but God wouldn't let him. Until later, at that very last passage you read, all of a sudden, he knew he was headed to Jerusalem, and he didn't know what light ahead. We know it's going to be Rome. If we follow Paul closely on his missionary journeys, he has some major changes that uh, that change in his strategy. He has some major changes that change in his philosophy. He has some major changes in both of those departments. On the first journey, Paul meets his first convert and appears to change his plans radically. He bounces throughout the region of Galatia and Iconia, sporadically jumping from one town to another. He doesn't stay in any city for more than a couple weeks. While some might argue he plants churches, quote unquote, he does not start any real communities. What we would call house churches, he doesn't start those. He certainly doesn't belong to any fellowship of believers where he stays for any period of time. After his first journey, there is no record of Paul making any disciples, Talmudim, or starting any house churches. He spreads a lot of gospel. He creates a lot of methetes, students, but no disciples, no house churches. His second missionary journey happens at a much slower pace. He stops in Corinth and stays there for a year and a half, you told me. He starts a house church there with Priscilla and Aquila. We are told that he had swung through Lystra again and called Timothy to be his Talmud. Now, it doesn't say that in the Greek, but Timothy is definitely a Talmud. Add Timothy to Priscilla and Aquila, and we get the following count. After his second journey, Paul has at least three disciples and has started and belonged to one house church. So after the first journey, how many disciples, Brent? Zero. And how many house churches? None. And after the second journey, he has three. Three disciples and how many house churches? Uh, just the one. Excellent. Things continue to progress, and Paul is now expanding his ministry on his third missionary journey. Still working with his disciples, he is now sending them out and starting more intentional communities. But possibly even more important is this reference in Acts 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. After his third journey, Paul has helped plant multiple house churches and now has about 12 disciples. Let's review. First missionary journey, Brent, how many disciples? Zero. How many house churches? Zero. After the second missionary journey, how many disciples? Three. How many house churches? One. After the third missionary journey, how many disciples? Uh, about 12. About 12. And how many house churches? A bunch. A bunch. Wait a minute. Now a question, though. Yes. So Barnabas doesn't count as a as a disciple on the first time around? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, because at some point he starts as his rabbi, his overseer, his partner. Does he ever kind of like switch? That's a very Jewish question. I, I see him being a Talmud. But it is a unique relationship because of that. So that would be like unheard of. It's just weird. So I don't know if, if we would qualify him as the same kind of thing. But good question. But you were right, Brent. You, you made a point of pointing out about 12. 
Like, why is Luke, what is Luke doing here? Did the Holy Spirit have a hard time remembering the exact number when he inspired Luke to write it down? About 12? I mean, what was it, Holy Spirit? Was it 11? Was it 12? Was it 13? Apparently, what we're supposed to hear is about 12. 12 seemed good enough to the Holy Spirit. (laughs) But why? Why does the Holy Spirit do this? Here's why. Because Paul is starting to look more and more like who, Brent? Like Jesus. Jesus. Luke isn't trying to give us the exact count of the Talmudim following Paul. He's trying to tell us who Paul is becoming. My teacher told me that he had a Jewish rabbi notice that Luke, not a believer, not a Messianic Jewish, a Orthodox Jewish rabbi who doesn't even study daily the New Testament. He noticed that Luke deliberately made his account mirror the life of Jesus. This Jewish rabbi of Ray told him, consider the following. Have you ever heard of a rabbi who recruited disciples who used to follow John the Baptist, told his disciples he had to go to Jerusalem, is accused of speaking against the temple, is convicted by a Roman governor? Luke is trying to tell us that Paul is looking more and more like Jesus every day. And I would argue that the driving idea is that Paul is spreading less empire and planting less churches. And that's not a knock. I have, a, I have so many good friends that are in the church planting movement. That's not a knock on planting churches. We need to plant churches. We should plant churches. I love planting churches. But somehow we've gotten all wound up in planting churches and nobody's making disciples, not rabbinically. We're not making disciples like we're seeing here again. So he's planting less churches and he's making more disciples. I don't know if Paul even gets it himself. What I find so interesting is that Paul is so dead set on getting to Rome, but God keeps preventing him according to his own words until the moment that Paul makes about 12 disciples. And the very next page is the moment that I'm told that God shows up and tells Paul, now that you can go to Rome, now that you look like Jesus, you can go to Rome. And I find myself back on my soapbox. I feel as though God is pretty serious about this disciple making stuff. And it doesn't seem like disciple making is church planting. And it doesn't seem like disciple making is expanding Christendom. And it looks as though disciple making is done the way that Jesus did it. Timothy, come follow me. Here you go, Brent. That's all I got for today. That's it? That's it. It's going to end right there before I say anything I regret. All right. Well, uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. Uh, check out our Bama Discipleship Facebook page, and uh, we probably have some some other ways to connect. Uh, yeah, you can you can check out the Bama Messenger if you're not signed up for that newsletter. We send that out every once in a while, let you know about uh, the upcoming trips, so you can come to Turkey and hear all these stories that that uh, uh, that we're not necessarily sharing on the podcast. And, and see, uh, even the ones that we are, you can see them in person and see what, what it's like. To, I mean, it's crazy. It's Ephesus, Ephesus is crazy. It's awesome. It's massive. It's, I, I just had no idea. Like, you, you think about these letters, and it's like, well, what is, you know, this little, this little community. Ephesus was a thriving city. Huge. You Second see it. largest city in the empire. You got to see it. Uh, anyway, thanks for joining us on the Big Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye.